everyone, and welcome to the Friday, March 24th, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, you know what? Uh, honestly, it would be shorter at this point to tell you what did not happen this week. So let's skip the formalities and get right to the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette and Cedar Rapids. With me this week is the exhausted crew of Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Hello, Tom. Good morning. We have Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough. Hello, Caleb. Glad to be back, Aaron. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal is here. Greetings, Jared. Aaron, I don't have anything uh, funny to open with. I don't know any good uh, Iowa politics jokes. <laughs> That's all right. Keep me out of trouble that way. And lastly, we have Gazette <laughs> oh, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Tom. I was just saying, I call BS, and we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> And finally, it's the instigator himself, Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. And I hope today we all strive to be the Caitlin Clark of podcasters. Oh, Amen. now there is a goal. Holy moly. Have you set the bar high? Well, I'm basically, I'm just going to shoot from the logo all day. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's become my custom. I, I mean, I can do that. I just hope nobody's expecting me to make them. Oh, yeah. Well, I, yeah, that's that's a given. <laughs> All right. Uh, like I said, so much happened this week, uh, and we're going to try and cram as much as we can into the podcast here. So let's get right to it. Um, and, and let's start our discussion of this wild week with a subject that's a little um, off our more well-worn path here on the On Iowa Politics podcast. On Tuesday, schools across the state dealt with phone calls, which all turned out to be hoaxes. Um, but that were warning of threats of school shootings in, in their areas. And, and I think it, the final number was uh, 30 schools confirmed to have re, uh, received these phone calls across the state. Um, and just, uh, you know, for me as a state house reporter who's uh, knee deep in politics 99% of the time, it, it was an interesting story to cover as it unfolded, um, not to mention the spectacular odds that were hit when this story about fake school shooting warnings broke on a morning when Governor Kim Reynolds had scheduled a news conference to discuss the state's school safety program. I mean, just absolutely incredible. Um, Sarah Watson couldn't join us, but to, to, to drive home that point, she had to call me after the press conference because she was confused how the governor was able to schedule that press conference so quickly about this topic. And, was, and I had to explain, like, no, that was just a, just an amazing coincidence. Um but it was interesting to me to hear state law enforcement officials discuss the, you know, the initial sort of fear that strikes just naturally when these calls are first reported, um, and then how that progressed as as call after call comes in, and it uh, fairly quickly becomes uh, obvious that it, it's all fake and it's all coming from one person or, or a small number of people um, that are uh, just doing this to kind of you know sow chaos. Uh, Todd. Uh, I don't. We hear occasionally about fake reports of school violence threats that happens, you know, from time to time, periodically in more isolated cases. But, but man, this was different. This was a. This was much broader and the, and a more technologically advanced effort that we learned. Uh, what did you think about all this as it unfolded Tuesday morning? Well, uh, you know, I guess it's been several years ago. There was a there was a series of school shooting warnings, or maybe they were bomb threats that were sent. Uh, I think they used automatic dialing technology or something like that. Mm. And uh, across the country and Linmar, my, my kid's high school was one of the high schools that, that got a threat. And so I received a text from my daughter that, 
they were evacuating and they take them up the up the road to a, a park is where they they go and they evacuate and so you know i i became one of those american parents you know driving frantically toward my kids school with sirens wailing and mm. you know not knowing what exactly was going on and that of course turned out to be a hoax but it, it was scary and i and i guess you know that's the that's the despicable part about this kind of thing is that you know kids are already on edge you know with all that's happened and is happening i mean they do active shooter drills they do all of that stuff so to do these fake threats i mean luckily this was found to be fake before it got to the point where any schools had to act but i mean it's when that happens though you know kid it, it contributes to the confusion because if you have enough hoaxes and the real thing happens kids are confused you know as to whether this is real or a drill or another mm-hmm. another hoax uh and it, it you know it just contributes to the anxiety for kids and and their parents and school officials and law enforcement so uh i don't know that they'll catch the people that did this but it's you know it's it, it's it's not a joke it's it's pretty serious i mean i remember back in the day when we used to call the radio stations and try to cancel school in the winter time but we didn't have the code word Right. Uh, and that <laughs> was back before like, an announcement yeah that was back before caller id and all that stuff so you didn't get no. you didn't get in trouble but that was that was a lot different than this and i mean we're going to see more of this uh you know there's there's this you know it's part of this swatting phenomenon where you you do something in order to get a big law enforcement response and i mean they it's done to individuals too I mean, there's umpteen stories that you've heard of of people at home and the SWAT team shows up because someone called uh, impersonating their number and, and called the, the police and said there's a hostage situation or something. So, yeah, just another great example of how, you know, technology is nice, but misused, it can be mm. a big problem. Yeah. That's such a great way to, to illustrate it too, Todd. I hadn't even thought of it that way, but now that you say that my daughter is 17 and a junior in high school and, and it's, it's, kind of amazing at moments like this to just think about the world that she has grown up in as a student um and and the and the stuff that she's lived through and and um you know even thank god obviously has not experienced one of these but just like you mentioned having to prepare for these constantly and be aware of them and the possibility that it could happen in her school next uh if any of these kids uh did my daughter's age roughly uh, come out of uh, life any halfway normal? That's a credit to them because it's a uh, it's amazing what they've been brought up through and experienced. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, let's move on to a, a, a happier topic, um, and, and at least generally, and maybe even happier if this bill happens. Um, in honor of opening day being less than a week away, go Brewers! Uh, we need to discuss an interesting baseball bill in the Iowa legislature Uh, for all you professional baseball fans in Iowa who are sick of so many games featuring regional regional teams like the Cubs, Cardinals, Twins, Brewers, White Sox, all blacked out on TV. Then Iowa representatives, J.D. Scholten, who is a former independent league baseball player, by the way, and Bobby Kaufman have introduced a bill that they hope will end those TV blackouts. Uh, The bill very plainly prohibits TV and streaming services from blacking out professional baseball games in Iowa. That is a grand slam proposal for Iowa baseball fans. Waka, waka, waka. Uh, But Tom, uh, the big question I had going into this, and and you wrote the 
this story. Um, does the state even have that kind of authority here? Can they actually do this? Uh, it's, it's, it's unlikely. Um, okay. And so I asked that question of House Minority Leader uh, Jennifer Converse, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, um, who also grew up watching uh, the Chicago Cubs on WGN um, <laughs> and provided a statement um, in a, a press release that um, Representative Shulton um, sent out um, announcing the uh, legislation. And she said, is there really a clean legislative fix for this at the state level? Um, she said that she's not sure that there is, but that um, filing the bill is important to um, try and move the needle a little bit um, on this issue and raise awareness about this issue and to um, hopefully pressure um, Major League Baseball um, and um, its um, TV network um, to, to, to lift these blackouts, to, to address this issue. Um, and I spoke to um, Representative Shulton, and he said that he's actually set to meet with MLB officials next week to talk about the issue. Um, you know, I also asked him the question about, you know, what regulatory authority, if any, you know, do state lawmakers have on this issue? And he, you know, acknowledged that the Federal Communications Commission regulates interstate communications by radio, television, satellite, cable um, in all 50 states. And he says, you know, this should be a federal issue, but we have to do what we can at the state level, again, to help raise awareness um, and hopefully move the needle, pressure MLB a little bit. Um, it, well, and, and then again, he said at the bare minimum, I hope that this pushes MLB more to uh, to address blackouts in the state. Yeah, and that's and that's fair. And and look, there's there's even recent examples of that being at least somewhat effective. Uh, you could argue, and we don't even have to leave the world of sports, uh, which is great for me because I love sports. So let's stay here, anyways. Um, with the name, image, name, image, and likeness stuff, right? I mean that th there was momentum building for that for college athletes to be able to make money off of signing autographs or, or, or appearing in advertisements, et cetera, et cetera. And you started to see movement on that in state legislatures. And, and it was probably similar then that people would have said, you know, we're ultimately uh, we may not have the authority here, but, but those bills help build that momentum, you know, and, and when a bill's filed, reporters like the the doofuses here on this podcast write about it and then and then people out there uh read it uh so so um i think that's a fair uh that's a great summary and that's a fair um point made by representatives uh conference and Schulten. so um this bill probably won't get um my brewers and y'all's cubs on tv this summer uh more often but uh, may maybe it uh, helps um like uh you described there, Tom, move that needle. And maybe by next summer, uh, uh, let's just real quick go around the horn here. Who's everybody's favorite baseball team and uh, how sad are they? that They don't get to watch them. Mine's the Brewers. Mine's the Cubs. Yeah, boo. Oh, I, I'm the, res I'm the resident non-baseball fan. I, I can't say. Oh, bigger boo. I mean, I saw I'm Cubs sorry, folks. We've summer. lost, we've lost Caleb McCullough. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Cut his feed. Cut his feed. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> How but but how lazy have we become? I mean, if I want to watch a Twins home game, I should get my ass to Minneapolis. I mean, that's <laughs> that's just that's just fair. I mean, it's a short drive. It you know, yeah. it's about a it's about an eight hour round trip. Right, right. And, you can you know, 
Jeez Louise. The, the, I mean, and that's what, it's so interesting being here in Iowa because as much as baseball fans across the country are annoyed by this, we've got like, there are fans of like literally five or six different teams in this state. And all of them are at least four or five hours away uh, with the exception of would, would Kansas city be the closest? It, it, well, it depends on where you live. Yeah, yeah, if you, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. 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 If you know, if you if lived in Northern, North, yeah, Iowa, yeah, if, and the twins if you lived in, in, if you lived in Red Oak, you know, Kansas city is pretty close. Yeah. yeah. You live in Mason city. It's not, it's a couple hours to the twin cities, but yeah. 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 Anyways. Aaron, as the uh, as the resident uh, proud uh, Kansas City native, I'd add that these uh, blackouts affect the Royals games uh, ah, too. No. Yeah, and um, I, I would say, you know, while the like viability of something like this is maybe a little difficult to parse out, as we were kind of talking about, anyone who's even remotely a sports fan has had to deal with blackout stuff like this and <laughs> hates it. Like right. absolutely despises right. having to deal with this kind of thing. I, I know one of the more infamous cases of this, not in Iowa, but a couple of years ago, there was a big back and forth for quite a while in the Denver area because Nuggets fans, which is a really good team in the NBA, they weren't able to watch Nuggets games at all because of like blackouts and some of these other weird regional, you know, TV broadcasting deals that get foisted on people that they don't really have much of a say in. So, yeah. well, and yeah, and when, and when you're not getting affected by blackouts, I mean, I subscribed to Hulu for the express reason that they carried Fox Sports North, which carried the Twins games. But before the season could begin, they got into a fight over rate yep. deals. And so Hulu <laughs> dropped them and has yeah. never picked them up again. So I've basically <laughs> gone back to my roots and uh, just listened to a lot of games on the on streaming radio because although even that is not easy to do sometimes because I've had issues with that, trying to listen to the chiefs like around here too on, on radio because of some of those weird. Yeah. The NFL is a little, the NFL is even more (laughs) of a a money grabbing outfit than major league baseball. If if that's possible. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, obviously uh, an issue that uh, we're all except for Caleb here passionate about and, and uh, we'll be following <laughs> legislatively. Yeah. We're, we're, we're parents rights. Heck with that fans rights. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's, there that's we go. The, that's the ticket that that'll I can, I can get on board with that. It seems like it's too much of a bother to get into baseball at this point. We all just wait <laughs> that's, for the yeah. that's a fair point. Actually. Yeah. You might, you <laughs> might. sit there like, listen to you guys. Why would I, why would yeah. I make the effort? I think, <laughs> I think maybe like pickleball might be something better to get into at this point. It's, it's, uh, it's becoming very popular or you can just watch people play video games on television, which which my daughter, uh, my, my daughter loves that. Yeah. Yeah. So does, so does mine. Yep. Okay. Moving on. Still so much more to get to, uh, elsewhere, uh, in the Iowa legislature, there was some interesting and, and initially some surprise movement, on Governor Reynolds' proposal to make birth control available without a doctor's prescription. Uh, so if you've been following this story, the shorthand has become over-the-counter birth control, but that's not technically accurate since it would have to be dispensed by a pharmacist. Um, so maybe behind the counter birth control. But regardless, um, it was interesting this week because Senate Republicans had previously rebuffed the governor's proposal by stripping it out of her maternal Healthcare legislation. They specifically passed that bill, but first ripped that out. And then all of a sudden, uh, early this week, Senate Republicans, uh, or maybe it was late last week, I can't even remember at this point, uh, but Senate Republicans put the proposal back into legislation. 
albeit in a different bill for some reason. And this bill was one that would make EpiPens available from a pharmacist. And, and for some reason, that was the vehicle they chose to put this um, uh, behind-the-counter birth control measure back into. So that was fascinating, uh, first of all. Um, and now the question is, what happens moving forward? Um, they have the bill in the House, the governor's bill, I believe, Caleb, correct me if I'm wrong, and they've kept it intact. Um, you covered them um, uh, holding a subcommittee on that bill shortly after this all happened in the Senate. What, what are House Republicans saying now about what's the next step? Because this has been passed out of the Senate now. It, it's, it's out of the Senate over to the House. So what's next in the House? Yeah, so um, the House advanced that EpiPen slash birth control bill out of the subcommittee this week. Um, but Representative Devin Wood said she'd prefer the language that's in the governor's maternal health care bill. So the House did keep that language in, in the governor's health care bill, and that is that was passed out of a committee um, several weeks ago, I think, at this point. But they um, haven't done it on the floor yet? Is that right? They have not done it on the floor, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, but that's the avenue that the House was originally taking, and it looked like there was support for that um, at the time. The main difference between the two is the governor's version says a person receiving birth control from a pharmacist needs to follow up with the physician within 27 months after first receiving it. So it gets a, you know, a doctor check in within a, a little over two years. Um, but the uh, Senate version is just a lot less detailed. Um, it you know, just basically adds oral birth control and other forms to a list of things that a, pres a, a pharmacist can prescribe without yeah. a doctor's prescription. Um, and so... There is certainly support for this to happen in the House. Um, it just depends on what form it takes. And uh, Governor Reynolds kind of said as much this week as well. She said she's working with both chambers and wants to get it across the finish line in one way or another. So, Yeah, and, and you mentioned that um, the, the doctor visit, um, that was something I got the impression, and tell me if you did too, Caleb, from talking to House Republicans, that that's something they feel fairly strongly about. Like they, they want to see that in there. So it feels like if this is going to get across the finish line and to the governor's desk that it's going to have to include that. Is that a fair view? on? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know, you know, whether it's a deal breaker or not. It is certainly something that um, that they wanted to see and that they preferred with that um, bill. Yeah. So I, I, I would assume that they feel pretty strongly about it. Yeah. Yeah. OK. And it doesn't. I'm just playing amateur analyst now. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that Senate Republicans would consider a deal breaker to have to agree to either. I mean, that's a seems like a fairly innocuous right measure to add but i who knows uh, uh what motivates the folks under the golden dome of wisdom so uh we'll see we're ripping through things folks uh, if you're hoping that we're spending a lot of time on topics uh they, there's just so much we can't stick around uh, we'll do deeper dives later there's more we want to get to um i want to make sure i'm even in the right place in my script that's how crazy this is um, moving on again, and Caleb, we're going to stick with you to start this one off because you covered it. Um, we had the most significant legislative achievement yet on pipeline slash eminent domain legislation this week uh, as the Iowa House passed its bill that would require 90% voluntary participation by landowners. Um, so that bill has been passed out of the House. That's farther than any pipeline eminent domain bill has traveled so far. Uh, Caleb, you covered the debate uh, and the debate and the vote. The final vote was interesting. Uh, give us give us some of the highlights. Yeah, so it was certainly an interesting vote. And um, I assumed kind of going in that it was going to that it had enough Republican support to pass just based on what 
um, Republicans were saying. But I was curious where Democrats would land um, because the party leadership has had not really been very vocal about the issue and just hadn't defined a kind of comprehensive position. Um, but most Democrats did end up voting for it. Um, in the end, it passed with 73 yes votes and 20 no votes. And that was nine Republicans and 11 Democrats that voted no. And then two members, a Republican and a Democrat, both um, invoked a rarely seen rule in the House that says that members can't vote on uh, legislation where they have a direct financial interest or a family, uh, immediate family member has a financial interest. And so, um, that yeah, it was Representative Megan Jones and Megan Srinivas um, that both said that they, for, for one re reason or another, had that financial interest. Um, so looking at some of kind of the opposition, Representative Ross Wilburn, who voted against it, um, he gave a couple of reasons. He said he didn't think the bill would actually stop the projects, but he also said he thinks the projects will create good paying union jobs in the state. And that has been, I think, something that um, has swayed some Democrats. Um, we've seen some union represent uh, lobbyists for unions supporting or opposing these bills and supporting the projects because it will create a lot of, or, you know, require a lot of people, a lot of union carpenters and, and, and different um, uh, jobs to, build these large pipelines um that one i don't and... entirely understand just because it's such a temporary job mm -hmm. that it would end up being yes. even if it is a union job but but that has i remember that uh being a um a, a union uh when the dakota access pipeline if, if you, however long ago that's been now todd uh the unions were uh in support of that uh back then too so and then that obviously was similarly temporary so you're right jared but it is interesting that they still come out and and, and uh, back these projects yeah they uh the iowa federation of labor uh, uh endorsed uh oh charlie is it mccormick that yes yes yeah the, a republican they endorsed him yes. over jessica whiskus because she was adamantly against the pipelines Man. and she had a pretty uh a pretty spirited encounter in her meeting with the local union mm -hmm. basically to explain why she was against them and they 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 weren't having it now so we jumped on you caleb did you have any more to oh, finish oh, off yeah, was, uh, um just talking a little bit about the support um the republican supporters were pretty united on on their central premise that eminent domain shouldn't be used to take land for private interests um representative stephen holt the floor manager uh, has said that he'd prefer a total ban, but that 90% mark was one that they could agree on. Um, and then some Republicans opposed it and wanted to instead create a, quote, landowner bill of rights that governed how easement negotiations between companies and landowners worked, but didn't change the eminent domain process at all. Um, so a lot of different competing ideas. And then really the, the question now is, is this the end for the bill? Because there has been pretty much zero energy for any of this in the Senate. Um, Senator Jack Whitver, Senate leader Jack Whitver's um, spokesperson on two Wednesday, whatever day that passed, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, didn't respond to a request for comment about whether that um, will get a subcommittee um, in the Senate. But um, Whitver has, I think I mentioned on this podcast a few weeks ago, you know, said there's competing legislation and, and we'll, we'll see how the legislative process works its way out. So, Caleb, yeah, one of the things you, you kind of mentioned was uh, with the Wilburn talking about that there's likely not much to happen in the, the Senate. And I thought that was interesting too, to maybe give us a reason like, eh, this isn't going anywhere anyway. So why, why vote for this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that is a, it's an interesting um, justification for sure. That's it's a practical reason, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Tom, you're writing about this topic for the weekend too. You're sort of exploring some of, of, of the politics that, and we've touched on it a little bit here in our discussion, uh, but without uh, giving away the farm so folks uh, will still want to read your story, uh, what can you tell us about uh, what you're hearing for folks as you uh, explore the politics of pipelines? Yeah, so, I mean, Caleb laid it out um, pretty well, but, you know, the interesting thing about this this issue, this topic, is that um, you don't have kind of, it, it doesn't fall neatly or clearly along party lines, right? Um, we've seen that you have people on both sides of the issue um, who support or oppose it for um, a variety of reasons. Um, you know, as Caleb mentioned, you've got, um, Democrats um, who oppose it um, because of um, the support from uh, labor unions and, and, and labor union jobs um, that would be created by this. Um, then you also have Democrats who um, decry it um, as an um, inappropriate use of um, eminent domain of the government's ability, authority um, to um, take, take land and overrule property owner rights. Um, for a, a project that they argue is, um, is largely for um, private as opposed to, to public gain. But then you have others who are worried about the impact that this is going to have on Iowa's um, ethanol industry and renewable fuel industry and what that's going to mean for the state's um, ag-based economy, what that's going to mean for um, rural communities and, and, and rural Iowans. Um, you know, more than half of the state's uh, corn crop goes toward ethanol. Um, so it's, it's just really interesting because it's a, it's a, again, an, an, an issue that doesn't really break down evenly along, you know, party lines in one that is, um, complex and has a lot of different, I guess, um, potential, you know, major pitfalls to it. Um, and, and the other thing, um, that I think is, is interesting about this is, um, I guess, at least from 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 my perspective, and I think from from a lot of people's perspective, although um, House Minority Leader Jennifer Confers um, kind of pushed back on this notion um, during a press conference with reporters yesterday, but it, it, it doesn't seem like Democrats have been very vocal about this issue. You know, they haven't really been that it's outspoken um, about the use of eminent domain for these carbon capture pipelines. Um, and it's at least from my perspective, it, it seems like a an opportunity for them to um, to, to you know kind of jump on that issue in, in in an effort to maybe potentially try and um, make some inroads and maybe win back some support from rural voters in rural areas where um, they've seen that support uh, decline over recent elections. Um, you know, and, and Caleb has, has covered a lot of these rallies and protests at the Capitol. But I mean, you've had hundreds, you know, come to Des Moines um, from uh, these rural communities protesting um, use of eminent domain um, and, and the impact that it's going to have on them and, and, and their properties. And um, I don't know, it, it was just interesting to me to see that, that, that Democrats, at least from my perspective, uh, haven't been, I guess, more vocal on that issue. One thing that I've 
find interesting that's been pretty much entirely absent from the conversation is the uh, climate change effects of, of all this. Because I mean, um, the, the ethanol industry and, and kind of the pipeline creators, you know, for them, it's it's for the ethanol industry, at least it's about maintaining profitability in changing markets, right? But the reason that these that there are tax credits for these projects at all is because the Biden administration wants to create more of them to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Sierra Club is one of the um, big groups opposed because they don't think that they're, they will, you know, they think that it's going to prop up fossil fuels, not make meaningful uh, reductions to greenhouse gas. But um, I just find it interesting, um, you know, if a Democrat's going to oppose this bill, that that hasn't been something that they've talked about much, that, you know, these are, to make that argument that these are an important tool to kind of reduce the state's greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, you're right. We, you know, I, I I remember hearing just a tiny little bit about that early on, but as that that debate has gone on, that that discussion has sort of fallen by the wayside. I, I haven't I haven't heard uh, much on that either. And you know, one other thing, kind of related to what what Caleb is saying, that's like a a sword hanging over all of this too, is you know, more and more of the automakers, including the American ones, are making more and more electric vehicles. And mm-hmm. so how long are these kind of projects, if they even do go through, going to have usefulness? And uh, and this here's another shameless plug um, uh, to a colleague from the Gazette who's got a story coming out this weekend. There's more and more emerging, emerging carbon capture technologies that would kind of render... Do, do the same job as these pipelines, but maybe better. Um, uh, I haven't reported this story, so I don't, I can't speak more intelligently beyond that, but, but uh, I, I am looking forward to, and I encourage everybody to watch out for Aaron Jordan's uh, story in the Gazette this weekend, uh, or uh, better Aaron, as I like to call her. Um, watch uh, that's, and I'm, I know I'm watching for it. That's going to be a really interesting one. Um, but, but it's just another element in all this. And, um, uh, and like I said, that that maybe makes these sorts of projects less relevant to, uh, as well. Uh, I don't know. Fasc- fascinating all the way around. We could spend more time, but we just don't have it. We still have two more topics to cover, folks. Let's go. Also in the legislature this week, uh, the Senate passed some pretty broad K-12 education policy. How broad was it? We could literally spend a whole podcast just on this bill. It's They dumped everything in there, combined all the proposals that have been hotly debated at the Capitol this session, uh, determining what books should be flagged for removal from schools, whether to prohibit the teacher of gender identity or sexual orientation in elementary schools, whether requiring parental consent before using a student's preferred pronouns, all of that and more thrown into one giant bill and Senate Republicans have passed it this week. Um, it's interesting procedurally that they did it that way because over on the House, they've been approaching those topics individually. So now in order to get any of that stuff down to Reynolds' desk, uh, House and Senate Republicans will have to work together and, and agree upon legislation that, that they both approve of and, 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 and in that exact language, obviously. Um, but I uh, wanted to go to Jared here because uh, interestingly, sort of tangentially related to this topic, uh, and specifically on books in schools, uh, the Sioux City School District was recently targeted by a well-known TikTok account um, uh, over some of their books in their schools, right, Jared? Tell us more about this. Yep. Uh, so on uh, Monday, um, the uh, conservative uh, activist account uh, Libs of TikTok um, 
tweeted out a screenshot of um, Sioux City West High School's library catalog um, showing the book, uh, This Book is Gay, um, available in the catalog. And the uh, tweet from the, uh, the libs of TikTok uh, described the book as uh, pornographic and uh, said it, quote, uh, teaches kids about gay sex and encourages the use of sex apps. Um, and within a matter of hours, the Sioux City Community School District removed the book from its catalog um, and said, quote, uh, we do not promote books that could uh, compromise student safety. Um, our uh, reporter at the journal who worked on the story, um, Caitlin, she noted in her story that the book is a nonfiction work and that it talks about sexuality and gender and that um, after the book got removed, the uh, Libs of TikTok account uh, tweeted out, uh, big win for students of uh, Iowa was the was the tweet, um, even though this was just related to uh, our district. So I don't know how that applies to the, the entirety of the state. Um, and That's we, how big Sioux City is, Jared. Don't, yes. don't underestimate. Uh, I, I appreciate that, I guess, in that respect. Um, uh, we, we didn't really see any harassment of the school district that was caused by uh, Libs of TikTok with this. But in the past, a number of outlets have noted that different threats have been called into places after the Libs of TikTok account has covered them. The most notable one was back in, in the fall last year where the Boston Children's Hospital had bomb threats uh, called into it uh, after the Libs of TikTok account uh, covered them um as it related to you know transgender affirming care for for minors um so i we, we weren't able to confirm this but i wouldn't be surprised if more than a few people in the district were aware of what the account has covered in the past and just didn't mm. want to deal with the headache mm. interesting interesting now i'm not I, i've heard that book title because i know it's been mentioned as, as as this debate has played out throughout iowa and nationally um, and, and I don't know how f familiar you are with it, Jared. And, and the reason I ask is, um, so the legislation that Republicans seem to have settled on, and, and as I said, it's in different vehicles right now, but the language is similar, um, as it deals with books in schools is, is, is the approach they're taking is redefining age appropriate materials in state law. And that definition would state that age appropriate materials exclude anything with, that depicts or um, that describes or depicts specific sex acts. So that would th theoretically um, not require the removal of a book that it broadly speaking has sexual content. Oh, it would only if it has specific specifically described sexual actions. Do you have any idea about, that book specifically where, where that falls on that spectrum. Like, you know, it, it, does it t just kind of generally talk about sex, explore sexuality or are there passages that specifically describe sex acts? I don't know. I, I think based on that, just from the, the excerpts I've seen and everything, it probably would get, uh, get dinged okay. for that. Okay. Um, so there you go. And, it, you know, it would be interesting to see how that gets uh, applied and, and parceled out because there's a number of people pointed out and I mean, you know, I went to religious schools from K through 12 and uh, flipped through the pages of the Bible. And there are specific <laughs> there are specific sex acts yeah. described. So if someone that was like a, you know, a liberal activist parent wanted to challenge that, they could they could make hay with that if they wanted to. So, yeah. And that it's that's a great point, Jared, because that was actually brought up during Senate debate on, on the bill and, and what the Republican who was managing the bill, Senator Ken Rosenboom um, from Oskaloosa, 
uh, said was he basically conceded that is right. That is accurate. That that this law, if it's passed as written right now, would include the Bible. And his his response, though, to that was essentially I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but it was essentially I'd like to see a school district try that. You know, he was saying, just, just watch the the backlash that they would experience if they tried that. So that was an interesting back and forth during debate there. All right. Finally this week, finally, we note that Governor Reynolds signed into law the two bills that impact transgender students in Iowa, the ban on gender affirming care for Iowans under 18 and a ban on transgender students uh, and adults, for that matter, from using school bathrooms that correspond to their gender identity. Um, so I did covered the news conference where Reynolds discussed these bills uh, on Tuesday. Um, and uh, her, by the way, her first uh, formal news conference in eight months, uh, not that anyone's counting. Um, so she defended the bills and, and then also said that her heart goes out to transgender students. And she added that signing the proposals into law was not easy and uncomfortable for her. Um, those are her words. Um, so it, it was also um, interesting in that news conference that Reynolds said she did meet and discuss the bills with some transgender Iowans. And that, that was the first I had heard of that. And I apologize if that had been noted somewhere uh, before, but I hadn't heard that before. Um, but anyways, especially on the it wasn't easy for me and it was uncomfortable for me comments. Uh, Caleb, uh, a couple days later, you covered state house Democrats weekly news conference and uh, house minority leader, Jennifer Confirst, a Democrat from winter Heights um, expressed what I think is safe to say were her pretty strong feelings about those comments from Reynolds. What, what uh, exactly did rep representative Confirst say? Yeah, I was trying to find good words to describe that press conference. And in two different places yesterday, I used lambasted and harangued. And I think that it was both a lambasting and a haranguing. So um, Confirst referenced that quote uh, that, that you mentioned, Aaron, and, and then kind of took a dramatic pause and said, I call bullshit. Uh, she said, the governor is not the victim in the situation and that the victim are kids who have to discontinue their health care and can't go to the bathroom today the same way they could on Tuesday. Um, she accused her of signing the bills to raise her national profile. And she said, um, you know, she's not the victim. She's the perpetrator and said that she bullies kids. And she kept it. She capped that all off by saying, um, "If she doesn't like it, she didn't have to sign the bills." So it was a very, yeah. very, very. Yeah, and it was said, and we have the video of that in our story online. So if you hadn't haven't seen that yet, uh, check out our uh, story, which is uh, well done, well written by uh, Caleb, and and then we've got uh, video uh, on there that uh, Tom took too, so you can see it for yourself too, because it was one of those. It, it was one of those like the person took a deep breath before they started. So you could kind of see that wind up and how strong they felt about that. So if, if I mean, we've talked a, 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 so much about those bills, but I thought uh, that was fascinating, that kind of exchange and that contrast between Reynolds uh, trying to kind of convey a, a sympathetic tone uh, to a certain degree in her press conference on Tuesday and then Representative Comfort, uh again, I think fair to say uh, not buying it on thursday so uh just fascinating stuff uh that's it sorry tom's making a motion he has one more thing to say before we go yeah so i was just i was just gonna add in here that um uh house speaker pat grassley republican from new hartford um was also asked about the bill and asked specifically about um why 
uh, lawmakers um, wrote it to um, take effect immediately, as opposed Mm -hmm. to providing time for school districts to make plans and figure out ways to um, to, 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 to comply with the law and, and, and to make changes. Um, and I guess, and, and Caleb, um, correct me if I'm misremembering, because um, you were there for that as well. But essentially what the, the speaker said was that, um, you know, they, they did that because when they wrote the bill, um, did it purposely feeling that the language included, um, I guess, enough flexibility for school districts to make accommodations for um, transgender students um, and that that was, again, I guess, in his view, enough flexibility there for um, school districts to, um, to to tailor and come up with, with plans that um, meet the needs of transgender students in their district. Um, and, and again, said that, you know, that, that, that he and, and, and Republicans encourage um, districts to, to, to make those accommodations to transgender students. Yeah. And he also said um, that, you know, he had heard, he had been hearing or Republicans had been hearing from school superintendents and administrators and, you know, essentially said, even if they don't agree with our approach that they wanted some immediate guidance or, you know, something along those lines. And that was kind of another, you know, reason for making it take effect immediately. Yeah. And we asked uh, Representative Holt uh, a similar question uh, last week on Iowa Press, uh, you know, do you expect this to go into effect immediately? Do you have, do you expect schools to comply immediately? And he, he basically said yes. And he, in his viewpoint, he didn't see uh, a, a lot of need for logistical changes. I, I think you could probably find some folks who would disagree with that characterization and 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 even to what speaker grassley said that yeah the bill allows for accommodations but in some cases trying to make those accommodations uh, may take some time depending on what a school currently has set up uh, in its restrooms you know if they don't have a single um use restroom you know what are they going to do that that could take some time uh, it'll be interesting and I'm, I'm sure we'll hear about that uh, from schools as we move forward and as they try to implement this uh i will say it's not quite as bad as the mask bill though uh, from gosh, what was that? That's been two years ago now when they signed the eliminating face mask requirements at schools, um, signed it into law at like midnight and it, it went into effect for the next school day, uh, literally eight hours later. So this is at least a little bit better than that one was. All right. We've finally reached the end of the road here. Holy moly. Thanks for sticking with us. If you're still on the podcast, uh, you the real MVP, man, if you're still here. Uh, that's it for this edition. Uh, if you enjoyed it, tell your friends, subscribe to us on streaming audio services like iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon. And now that you've listened to the on Iowa politics podcast, cause you just can't get enough. Make sure you're also subscribed to the on Iowa politics newsletter where every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you're here to hear today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Stephen Christopher will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a fo- sound file. I feel like we've got some new ones lately, and that's great. We, lo- we love to uh, have more uh, folks' music on here. Uh, for Tom Barton, Caleb McCullough, Jared McNett, Todd Dorman, our producer, Stephen Colbert, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thank you so much for listening.
Well, I lost my job And I lost my girl And so much more Same old country song It seems you've heard a million times before But this one's different in a way That you can't see It's about this ordinary man Trying to be a better me Cause I'm holding on to a better view
Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.